0: Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire.
1: It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon, Inc.
0: From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon, Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hello and welcome to Stefanomics, the podcast which brings the global economy to you. you know why the retirement age in so many countries is 65? Well, it's all thanks to Otto von Bismarck, the first German Chancellor who created the world's first social security system back in 1880. Now, he started with the retirement age of 70, then he brought it down to 65 because back then almost no one survived even that long. I was reminded of that top fact by one of the investors on a panel I moderated this week at the Milken Global Conference in Los Angeles, where billionaires and wannabe billionaires and hundreds of other people all gather to talk about investing, the global economy, and, when they have any spare time, making the world a better place. The theme this year has been Driving Shared Prosperity, and there's been some discussion about how to save enough for a happy and secure retirement, But of course, one way a lot of people today are investing in their retirement is by working and earning well past 65. I met someone here with a non-traditional take on that. You'll hear my interview with her in a minute. But first, one of our Federal Reserve reporters, Matt Bosler, has this story about older workers in the US and what it means for the economy.
4: was getting a whole $682 a month on Social Security, and I had bills, and sometimes I had to decide between uh, groceries or medication, and sometimes I had to decide whether groceries were good this week or next week.
2: That's Doris O'Connor. She's 68 years old and is part of the growing share of Americans who work well into traditional retirement years. O'Connor is a native of Brooklyn who's lived in Dallas for the past 20 years. Her story is a relatively happy one from an economic perspective. She's well enough to keep working, she finds her job fulfilling, and she's contributing to America's economy. But O'Connor doesn't have enough money to quit. Her situation is far from unique. Retirement insecurity is a position many baby boomers find themselves in. That's reshaped the U.S. labor market thanks to a new pool of workers available in an economy that's thirsty for them. At the same time, the more older workers there are, the less opportunity younger employees have to rise through the ranks. And the bigger pool of workers overall means employers have more power to pay lower wages, something that's been a puzzle in this economic expansion. About 20% of Americans over the age of 65 were working or looking for work in March, up from 12% two decades ago. That's more than 4 million extra people, or more than the entire combined U.S. workforces of Walmart, Amazon, UPS, and Target. For Doris O'Connor, her path back to work wasn't so simple.
4: It was hard because every day every day you go online and you look for jobs and... You try to find something that, think, that you think fits your skill level, and you put in an application online, and you never hear anything. And I also had the additional problem that I didn't have any computer skills.
2: So she went to get computer training at The Senior Source, a local nonprofit organization, and they ended up giving her a job. Her title is intake coordinator, and she points people who call in for help in the right direction. The increase in working among older adults is happening for many reasons. People are healthier. Office jobs are less taxing than the manufacturing and farm work of decades past. But a lot of it boils down to not being financially ready to retire. People are living longer, and there's been a major shift in pension plans that moves a lot of the responsibility for saving from the employer to the employee. People aren't that good at planning for their own financial futures, as it turns out. About half of households are at risk of being unable to maintain their lifestyles into retirement, according to research from Boston College.
0: The biggest fear
2: of the older adult is surprisingly not death. It's running out of money. That's Steve Benton. He's a financial counselor at the Elder Financial Safety Center in Dallas, which is part of The Senior Source. He helped introduce us to Doris O'Connor.
0: And uh, they are woefully prepared. These baby boomers are entering the retirement years and uh, don't have enough assets. They didn't plan uh, as a demographic. Uh, They have been known spenders. Uh, This is the first generation to ever reach retirement and still have mortgages.
2: Benton talks all the time to aging workers who haven't saved enough for retirement or who are worried that in a world of high longevity, they'll outlive their retirement stores. Life expectancy in America is just shy of 79 years, but that average is dragged down by folks who die in middle age. Americans who live past the age of 65 can expect to live to 84 for men or nearly 87 for women. One in four 65-year-olds will live past 90 and one in 10 past 95, based on Social Security Administration data. That's a long time to make retirement savings last, especially in a world where people are falling back on less reliable savings outlets. Alicia Monell at Boston College has spent years researching the topic.
4: A large swath of the population has a huge financial incentive um, to keep working. And working longer is really a powerful tool.
2: Sticking around the labor market allows people to delay drawing on their Social Security and 401ks, plus, it adds additional years for extra saving. Given that, Manel is happy people are working longer.
4: I think it's good news. If I had my way, if I were queen, I would like to change the conversation in the United States so that we establish 70 as the uh, sort of the national retirement age. And there are a couple of reasons for that. That's the age at which you get your highest Social Security benefit. And so it keeps that um, ratio constant.
2: As participation climbs for people in their older working years, it could help to delay when folks draw on their Social Security. That can make a big difference in how long that money lasts. Susan Weinstock showed us just how much using the AARP's retirement calculator. She's vice president for financial resiliency at the group in Washington.
1: So it asks about you,
4: your marital status, your age, your salary. Um, Sometimes the numbers are staggering and can scare people and we definitely don't want that.
2: So if you plug in the parameters, it shoots out both how much you need to retire and maintain your lifestyle and when you will start running out of money. Say you're a single 60-year-old woman. Your income is $50,000. You save 5% toward retirement each year, and you have $200,000 in your 401k. You'll face a shortfall starting at age 80 if you retire at 65 and want to maintain your lifestyle. But if you work until age 70, you won't fall short until age 89. Retirement insecurity is a problem that's here to stay, as younger Americans are even more likely to lack enough money to retire, according to Boston College data. That's because of the decline of traditional pension plans, as well as events such as the Great Recession, which forced some homeowners to leave their houses. It's not just the United States. Around the world, people are working longer. And among the G7 economies, the U.S. ranks only behind Japan in labor force participation for ages 65 and above. If older Americans can find work, it's good for the economy because it makes for more trained and available labor. It's not always an easy transition, though. Like Doris O'Connor, older folks regularly need to build new skills in order to land jobs. And even then, they're often taking on lesser roles than they're used to. Here's Steve Benton in Dallas again.
0: The jobs that they are used to and having at a certain uh, financial level are not there anymore, and so they are having to take less. And in fact, it's often uh, you almost have to dumb down their resumes because uh, people won't hire them. They tend to accept lesser uh, jobs just to survive.
2: If you ask folks who've been on the market recently, some employers might need to adjust their mindsets around older employees. Reports of age discrimination abound. Six out of 10 older workers have seen or experienced age discrimination in the workplace, and 90% of those say it is common, based on one AARP study. Research backs that up. A 2015 study of 40,000 applications for over 13,000 jobs in 11 states found evidence of age discrimination. Older applicants, those between the ages of 64 and 66, were more frequently denied job interviews than middle-aged applicants. That bias was especially present against older women, something O'Connor is very conscious of.
4: Before I got this job, I had someone tell me that I was just too old and I would never ever get a job, that I should just give up, and I think that's what's happening to some of my friends.
2: O'Connor says she's thankful that she managed to get her current role. She makes $39,000 a year, and that's helping her to pay off $80,000 in student loans from her bachelor's and master's degree, which she went back to get in 2005. She started a savings account, and she's even able to afford the occasional extra, like a bottle of wine or some meat. Now she hopes that the conversation around hiring older workers changes.
4: Everything is about people needing medical help or medical aids, and you know, it sounds, seems to sound like older people aren't fit. We have lots of experience. We have lots of wisdom. We have lots of help to give.
2: I'm Matthew Bosler with Bloomberg News in New York.
0: Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. Who do you think? It's your buddy.
3: Now I came across a speaker here at the Milken Conference who spent much of her academic life thinking and writing about these issues, Professor Teresa Giladucci, Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research in New York. I'm delighted to say I was able to pull her into an empty meeting room to chat. Here's our interview. Thank you very much uh, for doing this. Now, we heard quite a lot in that piece about the human side of this trend, of people working later in life. And it was quite a positive story, by and large, that we heard. But I guess we should also be thinking about what it means for the economy and society as a whole. You know, Is there anything that we should worry about in this trend?
5: Um, There's a big chunk of the American population who are over 65 and that's a growing chunk of people who don't have enough income um, to retire, and they have to keep on working. And since that group is going to grow in the tens of millions, I am focusing on that group. These are the people who have to work for money. Their fallback position is basically poverty, and therefore the employer can tell them, take it or leave it. They are working on the employer's terms not their own terms. And this means much more inequality in America in a way that is felt, but it's harder to measure than wealth or income inequality.
3: I mean, there's a lot of things there uh, worth thinking about. I guess, One thing I'm struck by, you know, as an economist, and when I was first learning economics, the thing that came across again and again as as the closest thing to a free lunch uh, in policy terms was raising the retirement age. It always made sense. It made the pension system more affordable. You figured it was probably kind of good for people to work longer. um, And it all, you know, it made sure that, you know, reduced the amount of time that people were going to be reliant on their, their pension income. But the worry I always had was you're treating a lot of very different people the same and when you're 65 or 60 you could be very different because you could have had a very different work uh, pattern of work so you can have if you look at the numbers as I know you have um, a lot of people who've been working since they were 18 working in physical labour don't get anything like their 60 they might have dropped out by the labour force by 50 in the UK certainly and in the US that happens. Does that affect how we think about formally changing the retirement age, even though we encourage people to stay as long as they want to?
5: I really like the idea that when, on the surface, it sounds like a free lunch. Everybody can just work a little bit longer. I hear this from my colleagues to say, it's a plus plus for everybody to work longer. Um, And they want to raise the retirement age to 70, which means that people aren't guaranteed good jobs until they're 70, it means that retirement benefits are cut at 62, at 63, and so forth. So what happens if you cut benefits for people who retire before 70? You create inequality in the United States that we never had before. What our system had done up until now has let the the rich and the poor, the blue-collar, pink-collar, light-blue-collar, and white-collar really have the same amount of retirement time. The educated work longer, but they started their work life you know, later. We don't count graduate school as work. <laughs> really. it's, it's, it's effort, it's um, involvement, but it's not the same as having started work when you were 18. And therefore, about everybody had about 15 to 16 years of retirement time. But if you are going to cut benefits, then people who are, die sooner are going to have to work longer, and you're telling them you get 12 years, 13 years, where people who um, have a better education do like their jobs, work a little bit longer, live a lot longer. Life expectancy in the United States on average has gone up, but it's only gone up for people above the median income. So the top half of Americans have gotten all the longevity gains just like the top half of all Americans got all of the the wage increases. So this is building in more inequality in terms of retirement time and satisfaction at the end of our lives um, in America. And we didn't celebrate the equality that we had achieved before. Mm-hmm.
3: So so there's definitely lots of different sides to this. You know, that's been, there's, some, there's some positive aspects, but also we worry about the longer term entrenching some of these inequalities. What does that mean for policy? I mean, how should governments be thinking about it? Because it's certainly true that, you know, they are still often getting it around the world, getting advised to raise their retirement age. I mean, in Europe, that's usually like number one on the list when you say, how are you going to fix Europe? You know, yeah. a lot of countries, it's yeah. often about raising the retirement yeah. age. How should we think about it?
5: Um, well, first of all, let's look at um, the G7, the rich, large countries in Europe and in Japan and the United States. Um, Longevity for people in the United States is the shortest. So um, people who reach 65 in the G7, the Americans live the shortest. Look at the retirement age. It's actually the Americans and the Japanese who work a lot longer. So it did make sense for the Italians to um, marshal their policies to make sure that the labor market was open to Italians who wanted to work past the age of 55. That makes perfect sense. But that broad brush does not work for the United States. To have United States workers work even longer would mean that they're working more hours per week, more weeks per year, and more years per lifetime than most other countries, especially rich countries. where really are outliers. It also doesn't make sense for the economy to force older people um, to work longer without an enormous effort for training um, and for and and to eliminate age discrimination, because what we're doing in the United States is asking 10,000 people who reach 65 every day to stay in the labor market um, when they don't have a good fallback position. So we are asking. Um, older people to go to Amazon warehouses, to go behind the counters of drugstores, of CVS, to wipe tables um, at McDonald's um, without protection. That is actually a big enough number, with 10,000 a day, to affect the entire labor market. So our biggest occupational growth is happening probably in the UK, too, and personal care and home health care. And you have two kinds of people working in that job. You have minority younger women who are mothers, and you have older white women. It's all old, it's older women increasingly taking care of even older women. Those are the worst jobs available. That it, It's back-breaking work. It, there is evidence that work for people over 65 of certain occupations actually brings on morbidity and foreshortens their life. So, It isn't, that's really the dark side. And these are the costs um, and unintended consequences of this cheery policy for people to work longer. In terms of policy, we need to make sure that everybody reaches 62, 65 after 45 years of, of a work life with enough money to walk away from a job if they want to. And we have to protect every adult in a civilized society, a job if they want it age discrimination should be illegal and effectively non-existent everywhere. Um, But having an affirmative policy to make work attractive to older workers is very different than the policies we have in America, which is basically forcing people to work or else they'll be poor.
3: I guess one final point is, you've mentioned it implicitly, but uh, if we're going to have people around the world potentially working longer for a mixture of reasons, it may be, I think, in the in the US, um, maybe some of disproportionate amount of the growth is coming in these more worrying segments that you've talked about. But it's also true um, around the world that there's plenty of quote unquote kind of good late work happening. Do we think in general that's going to have an impact on productivity growth? Because that's obviously the worry when we already have quite low productivity growth. You know, should we expect demographics to keep productivity low?
5: Um, you're an economist, and uh, and I think everyone can intuitively understand the economic lessons. If employers can get workers cheap, there is no incentive for employers to improve productivity, to improve the way they do things, to add more Um, and better machines to the worker, you don't add any more capital. If you can get a lot of workers cheap, then productivity um, is going to to drop. So I'm afraid that if you just have lots of people who would rather not work, still have to work, that that will lower average productivity. Employers have to be in a situation where they have to draw people into their jobs to make it attractive, and that's often... um, higher pay and probably a, a lot more productivity so I see this big push for huge increases in labor supply to be productivity diminishing not enhancing
3: Professor Galaguchi thank you very much this is a, it's a definitely a different kind of take and a slightly um, more mixed take on this phenomenon we see everywhere of older people working thank you very much thank you Stephanie. Finally, because I'm in L.A., of course I have to talk about the movies. Now, 20 years ago, it took the film Titanic more than three months to become the first film to take $1 billion at the box office worldwide. Now, billion-dollar global blockbusters are two a penny almost, and the final episode of the Disney-owned Marvel Avengers series, Endgame, has already taken more than a billion after just one record-breaking opening weekend. I can't help thinking this tells us something about the world today, other than the fact that we all like a good superhero. I took a break from Milken to go to the Bloomberg LA Bureau to get more from our entertainment reporter, Anusha Sekoui. Now, Anusha, for the four people left in the world who don't already know about it, just talk me through those record-breaking numbers for Avengers Endgame.
1: Well, there are so many, Stephanie. I mean, it's broken a huge raft of uh, records. It's the fastest to a billion dollars it's the biggest opening weekend domestically and globally it's really already the 10th highest grossing globally of all time and just after six days globally already it's earned something like 1.3 billion dollars which is you know what you'd hope after a long run even for a very successful film so that gives you uh, an idea even just after the first weekend we haven't even got into the second weekend.
3: And I see it had a pretty healthy effect on the Disney share price as well. But you know, what does it tell us about the industry that the numbers now can get so big so quickly?
1: I feel like it's a combination of two factors. One is a trend of globalisation in the movies, which is driven mainly by the opening of China um, over the past you know decade or more. Um, Hollywood studios have been able to import their films into China with restrictions, you know, and with the current talks between the US and China, there is hope that that might open up even further. So China is the second biggest uh, movie market globally and is expected, has been expected for a little while to overtake the US at some point. Um, so that's a, a really important driver in terms of the numbers. The other thing is a, a trend in content where we've seen the strategy of studios shift from one where you'd have what Warner Brothers still does now, which is, say, do something like, you know, 20 to 30 movies a year, which can vary in size from the big blockbuster that might cost a couple of hundred million dollars to smaller films, you know, maybe $20 million and cater to a range of audiences. Disney has become the far and away massive leader in this industry by focusing on uh, known branded content, if you like, known intellectual property, Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, um, and its own classics to release maybe 10 films a year. And each of those are just very big. So they do a smaller number of very big bets. And they've cornered the market. I mean, they have something like, you know, 30% of the box office. And that's before they bought 20th Century Fox uh, last year. I
3: mean, thinking about it as an economist and actually some of the things we've talked about already uh, on Stephanomics is, you know, the nature of globalization and what it does to the corporate sector, the nature of companies, but also what it does to distribution of incomes worldwide. I mean, just on the company side, the fact that we now have a world and I guess technology has been part of this, but technology combined with globalization produces these companies that are just bigger and more globally dominant than any we've had in history. And, you know, we see that play out with this film and just the numbers that you described with Disney. I mean, it wouldn't have been possible, Anush, I suspect, um, 50 years ago for a single company to have that kind of dominance worldwide.
1: Well, no, and, and what's happening is that there is consolidation in Hollywood driven by a number of factors, you know, streaming, and that technology has meant that people now can stay home and have Uh, an equally riveting time at the movies. Another thing that's happened is rising ticket prices. Uh, uh, Theatres are charging more for supposedly a better experience. Um, You know, reclining seats and uh, bigger screens. That's uh, that's how they're managing to, especially in the US, get to record-breaking box office figures that they have done in the past couple of years, because actually uh, attendance has been stagnating in the US. It's only in China and uh, in the Asia region where we're seeing growth in movies going. Anusha, thank you very much. My pleasure.
3: Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Come back next week for more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this show, we would love it if you took the time to rate and review it so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter, and you can also find me on at my Stephanomics. The story in this episode was reported by Gina Smalik and narrated by Matthew Bosler. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Landman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks this week to Professor Teresa Giladucci and Anusha Sekui. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.
0: Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film.